Now, how many of you use the Walmart pickup? Instead of going in, have Walmart delivered out to you out at the curb. I, I've kind of resisted it for the most part because I like going in where the people are uh, and seeing if I can see somebody to talk to and to visit with. But Kelly and Diane are kind of all in with it. They would much rather order it on their phone, have it delivered up to the curb. Uh, and, and typically I go to do the picking up and I pick it up. They set it to pick up between 8 and 9 so I can pick it up after I finish the gym before I come home and start getting on with my day. But one of the things they usually say, if you've used it, they, they come up and they say, did you see the substitutions? Right? Because sometimes all the stuff that you've ordered isn't actually there in exactly the way you've ordered it, and they've had to make some sort of a substitute. Now, it's supposed to be something very similar uh, to what you've ordered, but not exactly what you had. I, I talked to a guy on Monday, and he has not used Walmart pickup because they did it once, and they got all the substitutions, and they were all wrong. Now, we haven't had that, that complaint. Every time we've had a substitution, it has been fine, and it's been a, a good substitution. So when they say, have you seen the substitutions? We say, they're okay. You've done well so far. And, and, and with that, we know that there are times where there are substitutions to things we want, and those substitutions are as good as the original. They're good to go. They're not a problem. But then there's times when they're not. Tonight, as we continue our, our study on taking God seriously, we're going to look and we're going to see that there was a time when the nation of Israel tried to use a substitute. They tried to use something other than God in their life. And they found that the substitute was not nearly as good as the original. So open your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 13 verses. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Jeremiah 2 says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness and the land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and as the firstfruits of his increase, all that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity had your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and have become vain? Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through the land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passeth through, where no man dwelleth? And I brought you to a plentiful country, to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. The priest said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Wherefore I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord. With your children's children will I plead. For pass over the isles of Chittim and see, send unto Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there has been such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods which are not yet gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this. Be horribly afraid, and be very desolate, saith the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. 
They have forsaken the fountain of living waters and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The title of the message tonight is No Substitutes. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come tonight to study your word, to learn, to grow, to be drawn nearer to you, be more devoted to Jesus. We surrender this time to you that we would lay aside the cares of life, that we would focus just upon you. And so send your Holy Spirit to come. Father, let him give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. Father, help us to to take your word and let it sink deep into our hearts that it would bring forth good fruit into our lives. Let your spirit take your word and search us and try us and see if there's any way in our lives we have accepted substitutes for you. God, let your spirit reveal to us that there are no substitutes for Jesus, that, that there is nothing anywhere on this earth that can compare with him. and Nothing can do what he can do. In our lives. Let your Holy Spirit fill me tonight. And give me clarity of thought. And clarity of speech. That I would speak your words. And your ways for your glory. Have your way in all of our hearts. We ask. In Jesus name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So Jeremiah 2 contains part of God's indictment. Against his people. For their sin and rebellion. Which often is what we find in the prophets. Now verse 1. Jeremiah begins by saying. The word of the Lord came unto me. Right? And, and this is important because what Jeremiah is doing is clarifying. He is not bringing them his opinion, his ideas, his thoughts at all. Instead, he wants them to know that what he is saying, this is the word of God to you. Now in verse 9, Jeremiah is going to bring the charge against the people of Judah. He says, God says, I'm going to plead with you. Now the word plead that's used in the King James Bible is a legal term similar to our word for indictment. So what we should see in this passage is Jeremiah as God's prosecuting attorney. Right? God is the judge. Israel, they're the defendant. They're the one on trial. And what Jeremiah is going to bring is he is going to bring the charges against them. Here is what the people are charged with, Your Honor. That's what Jeremiah is going to do. Now, there are two primary sins Israel is charged with in this chapter. Verse 13, we say they're charged with two evils. They have forsaken the Lord and they have made for themselves broken cisterns which could not hold water. Now, in this passage, God describes himself as the fountain of living waters. In a little while, we'll look in John chapter 7 and we will see Jesus applies this to himself. Jesus says he is the source of living water. So for our day, we can very easily say this refers to Jesus. And so what we have in this chapter is a picture of a substitute. The people of Israel had substituted something for God. Just like in our day, We can easily, if we're not careful, we can try to substitute something for Jesus. And what God lets them know, and what we should know from this, is that nothing, their, their substitute is broken, and it cannot do what they want it to do. And that would be true for us. Whatever substitute we would have for Jesus, it is a broken cistern, it cannot do 
what we might want it to do because there is no adequate substitute for Jesus. There is no adequate substitute for Jesus. And what I want to show you in this passage today is why, three reasons why all substitutes for Jesus will fail us. Why all substitutes for Jesus will fail us. First, substitutes hinder our usefulness to Jesus. So God starts off his indictment by talking about how things used to be. Look at verse 2. I remember the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals. When thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. So God remembers a time when they loved him. When they were devoted to him because they loved him. They didn't do it because they feared the judgment of God. They did it because they loved the Lord. They knew God was great. They knew God was awesome. They knew God was worthy. And they loved Him. We also see in verse 3 that during this time they were holiness unto the Lord. The first fruits of His increase. But the idea that they were holiness unto the Lord means that they were wholly devoted to God. This was a period in their life where they said, they said we are the people of God. We, we devote ourselves to the Lord. We are set aside for God and for nothing else. They were devoted to doing His will. And they lived according to the will and the ways of God. During this time, God protected them in the wilderness, right? Um, in a land that was sown. They were holding us unto the Lord. And they that devour him shall offend, and evil shall come upon them. So those who would come up against Israel, what they would find is God defended Israel. God fought for them. So this is the way they were at one point. At one point they loved God. At one point they were devoted to God. At one point God took care of them and protected them as God had said He would. But things had changed. It's not the way they were now. Despite their one-time love for the Lord, despite their one-time devotion to the Lord, despite all God had done in them and through them and for them, things had changed once they came to the promised land. And so God asked them a question in verse 5. What iniquity have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me and walked after vanity and have become Vain. What, what changed is kind of what God's saying. You loved me, and you were devoted to me, and I took care of you, but now you've gone away. You don't love me. You're not devoted to me. What, what did I do is what, kind of what God's saying. God is saying, bring your indictment against me. Bring your charge against me. Tell me what I have done, how I have failed to keep my bargain, my end of the covenant. What has caused you to leave and to go away from me? And he goes on to say that in what they had done is they had chased after and what the King James calls vanity. Now the word vanity that's used there is the same word, I believe, that, that Solomon uses in the book of Ecclesiastes when he refers to things as vanity of vanities. And the idea of the word vanity is something that is worthless. 
Right? So they had chased after worthless things. But notice the result of them chasing after worthless things. You have walked after vanity and have become vain. They had walked after worthless things. They had pursued worthless things. And in doing so, they had become worthless themselves. They had become worthless to God. And they were unable to do what God wanted them to do. There was a reason and a purpose for God saving them out of Egypt. There was a reason and a purpose for God leading them in the wilderness. There was a reason and a purpose for God setting them up in the promised land and and putting His glory in the temple. There was a reason and a purpose. But now, now they had substituted worthless things for God. And in doing so, they become worthless themselves. And they couldn't do what God wanted them to do. Look down at verse 7. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof, the goodness thereof. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. God had kept His Word. God had protected them. God had brought them out. God had brought them into the land of flowing with milk and honey. And it was filled and it was perfect. It was just the way God had said it would be. And no sooner had they got in the land That they pursued after worthless things and they defiled the land. They defiled it through their wickedness, through their immorality, through their pursuit of worthless things. And they had made the land an abomination. Now the word abomination, as it's used in the Bible, kind of means detestable or loathsome. In some senses, it's similar to when... It means disgusting. It's When God talks about something being abominable, it's a very similar idea to Jesus saying, I will spew you out of my mouth. It's That as God looked upon His land that He had given them, He was disgusted by what it had become through their sin and through their pursuit of worthless things. Through their pursuit of worthless things, they had become worthless themselves. They had gone from being holiness to the Lord to being sinful and wicked. They, they had gone from being one people who loved the Lord to people who turned from the Lord. They, they had gone from a land that flowed with milk and honey, a land that the Lord loved, to made the land into something detestable, something disgusting. And it was all because they had substituted worthless things for God in their lives. There's a powerful implication for our lives. Do we want God to work in us and through us and for us in this world to accomplish His purposes? If the answer is yes, and it should be, then we have to be usable by God for His purposes in our lives. We cannot substitute God for worthless things. We we have to be what Jesus said. We had to be salt and light. But what happens to salt if we replace Jesus with worthless things? What happens to us if we replace Jesus, we substitute Jesus for something worthless? Remember what Jesus said about salt? Salt can lose its saltiness. Now, of course, we know salt doesn't lose its saltiness. 
that disciples can lose their saltiness. And when a disciple has replaced, has substituted something for Jesus, something worthless for Jesus, they become like salt without its savor. And and what good is that? Look at what Jesus said about it. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus said, unsalty salt isn't even fit for the dunghill. I've always thought that's really bad. I mean, that's a really bad description. How, how utterly worthless must something be if it would ruin a dung pile to be placed upon it, which is essentially what he's talking about. Now, the point Jesus is making is that disciples, those who profess faith in Jesus, those who would say, He is my Savior, He is my Lord, if they have lost their saltiness, if they have replaced, if they have substituted something, anything for Jesus, they are of no value in the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean they're not valuable to Jesus, that they are. It means they are of no help in accomplishing His purposes in the world. A disciple who has lost their salt does not, is worthless for kingdom purposes. They are not able to advance the kingdom of God on the earth. A disciple who has replaced, who has substituted something, anything for Jesus, can talk all day about how much they love Jesus. They can do all kinds of verbal and outward things, but they are worthless to advancing His cause and furthering His agenda on the world. And in fact, I would contend most often, unsalty disciples hinder the mission of Jesus on the earth. Right? I mean, when people say, there are hypocrites in the church. Sometimes that's just a generic thing they've heard somewhere. Who? Give me examples. And they can't. But sometimes, sometimes they can point to specific people, can't they? A mom or a dad. Sunday school teacher. A deacon, a preacher. Somebody who professes faith in Jesus and they are truly A hypocrite. They praise God on Sunday morning, but live like the devil the rest of the week. They're hateful, they're mean, they're crude, they're vulgar, they're immoral. What good are those kinds of people for the kingdom? They're worthless, but they're worse than worthless. They're hindrances. People will literally die and go to hell. Because unsalty disciples have replaced, have substituted something for Jesus. And they then become a stumbling block. Keeping others from Christ. If we want to fulfill the purposes God has created us to fulfill. If we want to fulfill the purposes Jesus has saved us to fulfill. We cannot substitute anything for Jesus. Because substituting anything... For Jesus. It always hinders. Our use, our, our ability to be used. By Jesus. 
And the reason is there is nothing that is an adequate substitute for Jesus. So, first, substitutes hinder our usefulness to Jesus. Secondly, substitutes keep us from following Jesus. Look at verse 6. Neither said they, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt that led us through the wilderness to the land of deserts and pits to a land of drought and the shadow of death to a land that no man passeth through where no man dwelt. They got in the land and now they stopped seeking after the Lord. These are the regular people. And now notice all the things it talks about God has done. God has brought them out of Egypt. God has protected them. God has, verse 7, the next verse, has brought them into the plentiful country. And yet now, they don't seek God. Why don't they seek God anymore? Why aren't they pursuing God? It's because they have substituted worthless things for God and they have stopped seeking God because when we substitute anything for God, we stop seeking God. But it wasn't just the common people that had done this. It was their leaders, spiritual and political leaders as well. In verse 8, the priests say not, where is the Lord? So I think this gives the implication that things had changed. Right? They were beginning to see that God may not have been working on their behalf as He had in the past. They weren't seeing maybe signs and wonders. They weren't seeing the crops and all of the other things. And so things weren't going the way God had said they would go in the land of the promise. But the priests, the people who, who were stood between God and the people and made the sacrifices, they never said, Gee, I wonder what's going on. I wonder... Why isn't God making it rain like He said He would? Why does it look like we're under a curse? Why are the bad guys coming against us? Ah, they just never thought about it. They never said, where is the Lord? The Levites, those who handled the law, those who taught the Word to others, they did not know God. That's what it says. And it's not talking about they didn't know about God. They knew all about God. They taught the law to people. So imagine it, imagine it. The people would gather to hear the reading of the Word and they would wax eloquently about the greatness of God who brought them out of Egypt. They would talk about the signs and the wonders God had performed. They would talk about the, the covenants God had made. All the while, God was a stranger to those people telling those stories. He was no more real to them then Prince Caspian might be to someone who tells about the Chronicles of Narnia. It's just a fantasy, a fictional character. The pastors, it doesn't refer to pastors like we think about it. It wasn't me. Pastors there refers to their political leaders, their shepherds. So the governors, the mayors, the kings. They also transgressed against me. Those in political power were wicked. You know, the Bible in the Old Testament, it talked about political leaders and how they were supposed to lead. But there were things they were supposed to do, things they weren't supposed to do, even though their position would have given them the authority to do. Right? So they weren't supposed to oppress the people. They weren't supposed to make themselves rich at the expense of the people. They were supposed to write all of the law, like every year. They were supposed to take time and write all of the law. And here what you found is the political leaders were corrupt. And they were immoral. And even the prophets. 
The ones who were supposedly who stood up and said, Thus saith the Lord. They prophesied. They walked. They prophesied by Baal. And they also walked after worthless things. So the people would go to the temple. They would be out and about and expect to hear, Thus saith the Lord. And they would hear, Thus saith Baal. Bell's message for you is this. From a prophet of God. And the prophet would finish and he would pursue worthless things just like the people did. As they began to follow after worthless things, they ceased following God. Always. Now what's scary about this, I think, when you read the Old Testament, there weren't great and large defections from the Lord. Right? I mean, like the people didn't go to bed on Saturday night after having been to the temple and made their sacrifices and think wonderful thoughts about how amazing their God was, wake up the next day and be like, I think I'm changing. I'm going after something else. I'm going I'm to go see what Bell is like. And then they abandoned God. It wasn't like that. It was always gradual. It was always a little step here and a little step there. You know, when when Joshua brought the people into the land and he divvied it up, they were supposed to finish the conquering. But if you're familiar with the end of Joshua, they didn't, did they? So the people of the land were still there. So maybe they started things like, well, now, look at, they worship Moloch. And they seem to be really good moral people. Let's go to church with them. Let's go see how they worship Moloch. Let's, let's go see what they do. Well, that was kind of neat. Is there any way we can take Moloch worship and we can incorporate some of that into this? Can, can we bring what's there, can we bring that into the temple? Because people are just kind of bored with the way we've always worshipped Yahweh. Moloch is kind of new and cool. We can bring that in. Or maybe they would worship God three Sundays, Saturdays a month. And then one Saturday they would go worship Baal or Moloch. It didn't matter how they did it. It was gradual, but the result was always the same. Once they replaced God with these worthless things, they always ceased to follow, ceased to seek. The Lord. Always. And it's going to be the same for us. If we substitute anything for Jesus, we will stop following Jesus. Jesus warns us about this. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, mammon, as it's used there, it's a, the mammon word is an interesting word. It basically means material possessions. But as Jesus uses it, He uses it as something that is the object of our devotion or worship or trust. In fact, one of my commentaries said that in the Syriac language, the word for mammon was the name given to the idol worshipped as the God of riches. And man, I don't have to... I don't have to go too deep to say, 
surely if there is a God our culture worships and is devoted to, it is the God of riches. The point Jesus is making is we can't serve the God of riches and we can't serve Him at the same time. Because Jesus demands the primary place of devotion and worship in our lives. And in order to let mammon come in, we have to, to make a trade. We have to make a substitute. We have to substitute mammon for Jesus at some point and in some ways. And once we do that, everything changes because we can't serve Jesus and mammon at the same time. I think we should be instructed of the words of Amos who said, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? And what he's saying is, unless they're going the same direction. And what Jesus is saying here is, He's going true north. And everything else, it's going some variation. It may be going south, it may be going west or east, it may be going mostly north, but just at a slight deviation. But He's still not going the same way they are. And if we want to go with Jesus, then we have to go with Jesus and forsake all others. And if we want to go with the others, we have to forsake Jesus. We cannot go with both at the same time. We must choose who or what will be the object of our devotion. And like the Israelites of old, if we substitute something, anything for Jesus, as the primary object of our devotion we will eventually stop following Jesus all together. And what makes it dangerous is it doesn't typically happen in great and large steps. All of us know someone who used to be faithful and devoted to Jesus. And now they aren't. Now they have no real concern. Oh, they may say, oh yeah, I still believe, but... There's nothing in their life outside of that statement of faith. They don't read their Bible. They don't go to church. They don't even particularly strive to live a holy life. They're just not at all bothered about Jesus anymore. And chances are, if we know them well, we can see there were no great and giant decisive steps. Instead, there was a little step here and a little step there. A little substitution today and another substitution tomorrow. A little bit here and a little bit there. But you know what happens, don't you? Over time, a little bit adds up. Think, think about with our penny march. It's a great example of that. Pennies and quarters and occasionally a dollar. But I mean, it's not much. You wouldn't think that's much. But we, we started this about 18 years ago when I got here. And we have literally given thousands, thousands of dollars away through pennies and quarters and the occasional dollar bill. Why? Because a little bit this Sunday and a little bit next Sunday adds up in months and in, in years. And it's the same 
in our substitutions for Jesus. A little substitution today doesn't seem like much, but we don't unsubstitute it. Right? I mean, if the pennies came in today and at the end of the day everybody came and got their pennies back, we would never send anything away. And that's what happens with substitutions. We make a little substitution today, but we hold on to it. And then tomorrow we make another little substitution and we hold on to both of them. And then we make another one and we hold on to it. And before long, we were walking down the middle of the aisle headed for Jesus. And now we're way over here. We're not going anywhere near Jesus any longer. Because little substitutions, little compromises, little deviations add up over time. What happened to Israel here, what happened to those we know, will happen to us if we are not diligent to ensure we aren't substituting something, anything, for Jesus. Because when we substitute something, anything, For Jesus, it always, 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 always pushes us away from Jesus. And it may just push us a little bit away today. But if we keep it up over time, we have been pushed further away than we ever imagined we would be. Because there is no adequate substitute for Jesus. So substitutes hinder our usefulness to Jesus. Substitutes keep us from following Jesus. Finally, substitutes rob us of abundant life from Jesus. God tells them to go to Chittim, Kedar, and look and see if anybody's ever heard what He's about to tell them. Now, Chittim and Kedar... We're like the east and the west end of the land. The idea is if you go, if you cross the world from west to east, see if you can find anyone that's ever done what I'm about to tell you about. And here's what he's about to tell them. Half the nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods. He said, so go all across the world and see. Find nations that have, that have national gods. And find out, did they substitute their God for another God? Of course, the reality was they wouldn't. No nation who ever worshipped a God would have substituted their God for another God for their God. Now, what they might have done was added another God to their pantheon. right? So if they worshipped Baal, they might say, hey, we'll add Molech to this. But they wouldn't replace Molech or replace Baal with Molech. And he says, and yet... And yet, my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. And and, and the thing is, think about it this way. No nation on the earth would do that, despite the fact their nations were no gods at all. I mean, that's kind of the point. Which are no gods. They, They worshiped imaginations. Their own imagination. Stories that they had been told. Idols that they had carved. And even they would not trade their idol for another idol. They would just add and have two idols. But Israel. Israel had a God. A real God. A powerful God. Who had worked in their life. Who had spoken to them. Had given them a way to live. He was the one true God. They had seen it. They had heard it. They had 
tasted it with the manna that fell. And yet, they had substituted false, worthless gods for the one true God. They had gone from what was real to what was nothing. What profited them for what could not profit. The idea of such a thing was so shocking that in verse 12, God says the heavens themselves would be astonished. And they would be horribly afraid. Just at an amazement at what Israel had done. And here's the crux of the problem, verse 13. They had committed two evils. And man, keep in mind, God calls this evil. Right? Not a problem. Not less than best. Evil. They had forsaken the Lord. And they had had carved out cisterns. Broken cisterns which could hold no water. So, charge one. First evil act. They had forsaken the Lord. In order to follow after worthless things, they had to first forsake the Lord. Because again, God's going this way and the worthless things are going in some other direction. And they can't go with God to go there. And so they have to forsake this way to go that way. They had forsaken the Lord. When we substitute something for Jesus, we forsake Jesus. That is a powerful and a challenging truth. Second charge, they had dug cisterns which would not hold water. Now, I know nothing about cisterns, so I had to look it up. A cistern is essentially a hole in the ground prepared in such a way it would collect and hold rainwater. In arid climates like Israel, where it may only rain a couple of times a year, there was no such thing as tap water, bottled water. Natural streams were few and far between. A cistern was a vital piece of equipment. In fact, I think you could almost say a cistern was a life or death piece of of equipment. A broken cistern which could not hold water was more than worthless. It was also dangerous. If you didn't know your cistern was broken and wouldn't hold water and the rains came and the rains went and you went out to get that water you depended on for your survival and it was dry, you would simply die if you couldn't find water. It was that serious. And in order to dig these cisterns, these broken cisterns, which couldn't hold water, they had forsaken the Lord who calls Himself here the fountain of living waters. Instead of receiving the living water from the Lord and all that the Lord gives as the fountain of living waters, they had sought these things from worthless substitutes the world offered them but could not provide. As is always the case with sin, it overpromises and underdelivers because there is no adequate substitute for God. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus applies this picture as the fountain of living water to himself and invites us to receive his living water. In the last, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. 
He that believeth on me, as Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe upon him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Now Jesus says the water represents the Holy Spirit. And he says those who are thirsty can come and they will receive the Spirit in abundance. And I say in abundance because it talks about out of his belly or out of his innermost being, it flows out. So it, it doesn't picture the Spirit being coming into us and it being a little dab. But it pictures being so filled with the Spirit, things of the Spirit begin to flow out of our lives. It is an, an abundance, an overfilling. Because as John 3.34 says, God gives the Spirit without measure and without limit. So what would it look like for us to have the Holy Spirit in abundance so He flowed out of us like a river? Imagine for a second this is filled with water. I could fill it with water. It was filled with water. And Scott came up. And I'm going to stand right here by Jackie and Evelyn. Scott's going to shake my hand. And what's going to happen when Scott shakes my arm? Water's going to squirt all over everywhere. It's just going to splash all over the place. Now, here's a question. I'm thinking through because it might be a trick. Why does water splash out of my cup when Scott shakes my arm? It's not because Scott shook my arm. It's because there was water in my cup. Right? So what does it look like for us to be filled with abundance of the Spirit? When we're shook, things of the Spirit flow out of our lives. When we're bumped, things of the Spirit come naturally out. So what would it look like for us to be so full of the Spirit that when we're bumped, when we're shook, the the stuff of the Spirit comes out of us? Well, it would look like this. Through the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And against such there is no law. We don't have a lot of time today. and We know what most of these things mean pretty well. So let me ask you. In a normal day, if you're bumped and something spills out, is it love or is it hatred? On a normal day, If you're bumped, does joy flow out? Or does some sort of sadness and despair? On a normal day when you're bumped, does peace flow out? Or does anxiety flow out? On a normal day when you're bumped, does long-suffering or patience flow out? Or do you fly off the handle? On a normal day and you're bumped, does gentleness or kindness flow out? Or does cruelty? On a normal day if you're bumped, does goodness flow out? Or does something vulgar and wrong? On a normal day when you're bumped, does faith or faithfulness flow out? Or do you break your word and not keep what you said you would do? On a normal day, if you're bumped, does meekness flow out? Or do you need at that point to make sure everybody knows who you are and what you've done? 
on a normal day if you're bumped does temperance or long suffering or self control flow out or do you just lose all sense and just fly out what spills out on a normal day and it would be accurate to say these things should spill out but the better connection to Jesus being the fountain of living water the Holy Spirit filling us and producing this is this is what should spill out. Yes, we could be filled with this. Yes, we should be filled with this. But yes, we can. We can. Can you, can you imagine a scenario in which you're bumped and you want to act in hatred but you respond in love? You can it's possible. It's real. Can you imagine a scenario when you're bumped and you want to respond with despair? But you respond with joy. You can. It's real. It can happen. This is a part of what it means to have an abundance of the Spirit. This is what Jesus invites us to experience. But what we do is we substitute something for Jesus, the fountain of living waters. See, and in these times, let's just do one because we don't have time. We're bumped and love could flow out. And we know it should. And that's what Jesus would produce if we would choose Him. But we substitute our anger in that moment. We substitute our pride in that moment. We substitute our frustration in that moment. And rather than what Jesus could give us flowing out, the substitute produces anger or hatred. It reveals it is a broken cistern. That it cannot hold water. Because when we're through. When we're through. And we've acted insane. We've had a scream and cuss and fit. We've yelled and called people names. And have just given full vent to our anger. How do we feel afterwards? Vindicated. Justified. Wonderful. Fully devoted disciples of Jesus. Are we ashamed? Ashamed of what we've done. Ashamed of how we've acted. Make no mistake, that shame is because we have chosen a broken sister. Had we chosen Jesus in that moment, the shame would not have flown. Would not have flowed into our lives because Jesus doesn't produce that kind of a shame. Those negative emotions we feel afterwards are all signs. That we've chosen broken cisterns which cannot hold water. When we try to substitute something, anything for Jesus, those substitutes rob us of the abundance from Jesus. Because there is no adequate substitute for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy 
of our devotion. And we come this evening. And oh God, we don't want to substitute anything for Jesus. We want to be useful for the kingdom. Vessels of honor, sanctified and useful by our Master. We want to follow Jesus and go where He goes and say what He says and do what He does. And we want the abundant life Jesus said He came to give us, which includes that fruit of the Spirit. Oh, Father, let us be so full of the Spirit that the fruit of the Spirit spills out of our lives when we're bumped. And Lord, right now, right now we're on a bumpy road in this old world. We're bumped every day by something. We're bumped by the news. We're bumped by people. We're bumped by disappointment. We're bumped by frustration. We're bumped daily. Man, almost hour by hour. Let us seek Jesus as that fountain of living water. So what flows out when we're bumped are the things of the Spirit. Oh God, search us and try us and see if in any way we have substituted anything for Jesus. Make it clear that we have. Lead us to the path of repentance. Show us how what we've substituted for Jesus is a broken cistern. Show us how it hinders our usefulness to Jesus. Show us how it's preventing us from following Jesus. Show us how it's robbing us of what comes to us from Jesus. Show us, O oh God, open our eyes, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're dismissed.